Hello, this is Taryn, and for the next hour, I'll be reading from the April 7th issue of the Wall Street Journal on the Niagara Frontier Radio Reading Service. We're starting right on the front page. We have the U.S. proposal forbids outright school bans on trans athletes. This is the federal Title IX rule to permit exclusions in some cases for competitive balance. The Biden administration proposed a new rule Thursday that would prohibit wholesale bans on trans athletes in college and K-12 education, but would allow them to be excluded from competitions if needed to maintain a level playing field. Under the proposed regulation, schools wouldn't be permitted to adopt one-size-fits-all policies that categorically ban transgender students from participating on teams consistent with their gender identity, federal officials said but schools would have the ability to develop team eligibility criteria that ensures fairness in competition or prevents sports-related injury. Being on a sports team is an important part of the school experience, said U.S. Secretary of Education Miguel Cardona, adding that every student should be able to participate in athletics free from discrimination. The new federal guidelines are an attempt to clarify how Title IX regulations that ensure equal access to education should apply to transgender athletes, a topic that has become a hot-button issue in college and K-12 through sports. About 20 states have passed laws restricting transgender students from participating in certain events, and the issue has generated considerable controversy and lawsuits. The new guidelines, if enacted, would likely set up legal challenges to many of these state laws, said Gabriel Feldman, director of Tulane University's sports law program. Also Thursday, the U.S. Supreme Court rejected an emergency request by West Virginia to bar a 12-year-old transgender girl from competing on her middle school's track team. In the first case involving transgender athletes to reach the high court, the Education Department's proposed new new framework for navigating the issue must undergo a process for public comment before it can take effect and is subject to change. It comes after the department in June proposed new rules allowing students and employees to file grievances for allegations of all sex-based discrimination rather than just those of sexual harassment and assault. Noncompliance with Title IX rules could threaten schools' access to federal funds. It is not clear whether, whether the new federal guidance will affect existing rules from the National Collegiate Athletic Association. The NCAA didn't respond to a request for comment. According to education department officials, the new rules would allow schools to adopt policies that limit transgender students' participation in instances of competitive high school and college athletic environments, so long as they promote an important educational objective such as fairness and competition. The officials didn't provide specific guidance on what sorts of criteria schools would be allowed to consider under the law when making decisions on athletic participation for transgender students. They said that permissible criteria would likely conform with some existing limits on athletic participation, such as restricting events by level. For example, teams with younger students often focus on building teamwork, fitness, and basic skills for students who are just learning about the sport, while a collegiate team may be primarily focused on competitive success. <clears throat> a, fact sheet published, a fact sheet published by the Education Department said, Tiffany Justice, co-founder of the conservative group Moms for Liberty, opposes the 
proposed rules. It's very dangerous for our girls to be competing with biological males who, would, who are markedly stronger, faster, and bigger, said Miss Justice. This is a sad day for women's sports. National Center for Lesbian Rights Executive Director Imani Rupert Gordon said that the LGBT group supports the new proposed rules. We applaud the Education Department for recognizing that the law requires that transgender students must be treated fairly and equally, Ms. Rupert Gorman, Gordon said. There are more than half a million athletes competing across all levels of collegiate sports under the NCAA. Transgender identifying participants are a small fraction of the total. The NCAA doesn't track how many transgender participants are actively competing, but fewer than 30 athletes who openly identify as transgender have competed in NCAA sports in the last decade, according to OutSports, a website dedicated to covering LGBT athletes and issues affecting them. Participation for transgender athletes within NCAA sports has been a hotly debated topic. Last year, the association updated its policy for transgender participation to match the policy determined by the national governing body of the sport or, in absence of a, such a group, the Sports International Federation. Previously, the NCAA called for a one year of testosterone suppression treatment for transgender women. Transgender men were allowed to compete for either men's or women's teams so long as they had not undergone hormone therapy. Last year, the NCAA drew criticism for how it handled the case of University of Pennsylvania swimmer Leah Thomas. Originally recorded to, recruited to compete for the men's team, Ms. Thomas came out as transgender in 2019 and began hormone therapy shortly thereafter, in accordance with the NCAA guidelines at the time. When Ms. Thomas returned to racing during the 2021-22 season, she won ev events and set records at multiple meets. At the NCAA Championships in March 2022, she won the 500-yard freestyle by more than a second while protesters looked on from the stands. The Supreme Court's order Thursday effectively allows the West Virginia case to move forward in the lower courts. In February, the U.S. Court of Appeals in Richmond, Virginia, blocked a lower court allowing a, the transgender girl, Becky Pepper Jackson, to be removed from her track team under West Virginia's Save Women's Sports Act, while litigation over the law proceeds. The Supreme Court majority provided no explanation for its action on Thursday. In a dissenting opinion, Justice Samuel Alito, joined by Justice Clarence Thomas, said the state should be allowed to enforce the school athletics law because the appeals court didn't explain its decision to block the measure. Now we'll be looking at stocks haven't looked this ugly in years. Measure of shares appeal relative to bonds at its lowest level since 2007. The reward for owning stocks over bonds hasn't been this slim since before the 2008 financial crisis. The equity risk, risk premium, the gap between the S&P 500's earning, earnings yield and that of 10-year treasuries, sits around 1.59 percentage points, a low that has, not, that has not seen since October 2007. That is well below the average gap of around 3.5 points since 2008. The reduction is a challenge for stocks going forward. Equities need to promise a higher reward than bonds over the long term. Otherwise, the safety of the treasuries would outweigh the risks of stocks losing some, if not all, of investors' money. 
The allure of stocks dimmed recently when bond yields shot higher and the corporate earnings picture continued to darken. The Federal Reserve now faces the dual challenge of raising the interest rates to cool inflation while reaching into its toolbox to prevent a full-blown banking crisis from erupting, both of which cloud the outlook for stocks. The S&P 500 has clawed back some of last year's 19% decline, rising 6.9% in 2023. The Bloomberg U.S. Aggregate Bond Index has jumped 4.2%, boosted by an early-year rally and elevated yields. The S&P 500 added 0.4% on Thursday after employment data pointed to the Fed gaining ground in its battle with the record-hot labor market. Bond yields edged higher. Bonds are offering a once-in-a-generation opportunity, but not once-in-a-lifetime, said Tony Despirito, BlackRock Incorporated's chief investment officer of U.S. Fundamental Equities. The current equity risk premium is closer to the long, longer-term ter- norm. The average premium since 1957 is around 1.6 points. BlackRock research shows... That means that stocks should still offer a better return than bonds given their historical outperformance, Mr. Despirito said. October 2007 marked a precarious time in markets. Stocks had recently hit their highest level on record and and the federal funds rate was near its current level around 4.8%. Over the following year, the S&P 500 would drop about 45% and the Fed would cut rates to near zero. Bloated stock valuations reset. Bond yields cratered. By March 2009, when the stock market bottomed, stocks premium over treasuries had risen above seven points and a new bull market was born. Stocks look pricey again today and markets are are facing a new host of challenges. By at least one valuation measure, U.S. equities are currently more expensive than those of any other country or region, research affiliates data show. That is based on the S&P 500's price level relative to inflation-adjusted corporate earnings over the past 10 years, or the CAPE ratio. According, although well-off prior peaks seen in the late 1990s and 2021, the U.S. stock benchmark trades at multiple at a multiple around 29, pricier than it has been more than 90% of the time since 1881. Valuations have historically plummeted during economic recessions, though some analysts have said lofty valuations won't prevent stock prices from continuing to rise. We have seen the peak for stock market valuations, but that doesn't necessarily mean we've seen the peak prices yet in this cycle, said Juad Mian, founder of macro advisory firm Stray Reflections. The economy is much more resilient to high interest rates than it has been in the past, Mr. Mian said. High nominal growth boosted by inflation will continue to support earnings more than Wall Street's consensus currently sees, preventing a significant drop in stock prices, he said. Analysts expect earnings among companies in the S&P 500 to edge up about 1.6% in 2023, according to FactSet. At the end of last year, they were calling for a 5% increase. Since 1957, equities have beaten out fixed income more than two-thirds of the time when they were held for 
when they were held for at least a year, BlackRock research shows. Stocks favorability improves as holding periods lengthen. Focusing on stock's slim risk premium misses part of the picture, Mr. Despirito of BlackRock said. The Fed intervention suppressing short-term rates and buying up long-term bonds created an abnormal risk-reward profile for stocks after the 2008 financial crisis. He encourages investors to seek stocks with resilient margins and strong earnings growth while avoiding overvalued companies. Some investors say frothy valuations mean value stocks. Those trading at a discount to their book value or net worth warrant consideration. Value stocks are dirt cheap relative to growth, now more discounted than they have been four-fifths of the time in U.S. stock market history, according to Rob Ornott, founder and chairman of Research Affiliates. When inflation has run between 4% to 8% a year, value stocks have been outperformed their have outperformed their growth peers by 6 to 8% percentage points annually, Mr. Ernot said. Consumer prices rose 6% in February from the year before, the smallest increase since September 2021. Inflation is wonderful for value, he added. You are listening to a reading of articles and features from the Wall Street Journal on the Niagara Frontier Radio Reading Service. Now we're taking a look at National Park Visits Surge and One Firm Benefits. Visitors driving into Montana's Glacier National Park this summer must buy a vehicle pass on recreation.gov. The pass is free, but visitors pay $2 for the reservation. Visitors must assume that, like entrance fees, the reservation charges help pay for improving trails or expanding the park's volunteer program. But a chunk of that money ends up with consulting firm Booz Allen Hamilton Incorporated. Booz Allen runs Recreation.gov, the website and app where people book campsites, hikes, and permits on public land. The company has a five-year contract that is up for renewal this year. In its bid, Booz Allen used data provided by the government to estimate that over the first five years of the contract, it would get $87 million and about $182 million over 10 years. Booz Allen gets paid every time a user makes a reservation on recreation.gov. That has earned the firm money far beyond its projections. Booz Allen invoiced the government for more than $140 million from October 2018 to November 2022, according to documents obtained by the Wall Street Journal in a public records request. Ten months remain to be counted for that initial five-year period. The arrangement for Recreation.gov, in which the government and Booz Allen work together on a number of services, including a reservation website, contact center, and data sharing, has led to critical criticism from parkgoers. They have questioned whether the government negotiated a payment structure that is in the public's best interest. Government officials said that this payment structure shifts the risk on to the contractor. Asked about the Recreation.gov's contract over time, the government said it continually reevaluates market trends when striking a deal related to reservations on public lands. During the pandemic, as Americans vacationed outdoors, many parks added reservation systems to manage crowds and protect natural resources. That has meant travelers often can't visit popular public lands without booking on Reservation.gov and paying a fee. 
Charges from around the nation include $2 to book an entry time, $9 to enter a hiking lottery, and many others. Booz Allen leadership has, transcri- has described the benefits of per, per transaction fee structures. One thing I learned in B school for all that money, it's a small number of times a big number is a big number, Booz Allen President and Chief Executive Horatio Rosansky said at a 2019 conference. Critics, including members of a lawsuit against Booz Allen seeking class action status and other diehard National Park visitors, said the government has let a multi-billion dollar company profit by charging for access to public lands. The lawyers said in the suit that the company is forcing American customers to pay Ticketmaster-style junk fees to access national parks and other federal recreation recreational lands. Booz Allen said such claims mischaracterize its work and compensation structure. Park officials said that the system has eliminated hours spent processing cash transactions. Government officials also said the U.S. has earned significantly more fee revenue than it would have without the, without the contract that Booz Allen's bid was substantially lower than competitors. When the company bid for the contract in 2016, government officials gave it historical reservation data and figures for projected growth to inform how much operating the site might cost, the website's government official staffers said. Recreation.gov offers reservations at over 121,000 individual sites. Federal officials said the expanded services give park managers more tools to manage visitation, including venue reservations, timed entry tickets, even permits to cut down Christmas trees. More than 23 million users had Recreation.gov accounts in fiscal 2022. The site covers services from 13 different federal agencies. Booz Allen's contract allows it to run Recreation.gov for five years, with five subsequent one-year options based on performance. The invoices obtained by the journal, the per-transaction amounts paid to Booz Allen, were redacted due to what the government said are trade secrets. Booz Allen has made a similar claim about these amounts in response to the recent suit. About 10 million reservations were made on Recreation.gov in the 2022 fiscal year, up from 3.76 million in fiscal 2019, according to Recreation.gov officials. They said the amount paid to Booz Allen for each transaction hasn't changed in the five years and that the visitation boom brought unexpected revenue through Recreation.gov and thus to Booz Allen. The Forest Service oversees the Recreation.gov contract. Gordy Bloom, the agency's acting director of recreation, heritage, and volunteer resources, said having the company run the reservation system is a great value. It has generated hundreds of millions in recreation fees that go back to parks, forests, and public lands, distinct from fees that fund Booz Allen's operation. Forest Service officials said, the lawsuit filed in January in Virginia by seven outdoor enthusiasts claimed the fees deceive visitors into thinking the money goes directly to aid public lands. Booz Allen is seeking to dismiss the suit. 
A company spokeswoman said the 13 federal agencies determine whether to charge fees on recreation.gov and how those fees are structured, collecting the ultimately used. The plaintiff's lawyer said the fees violate a federal rule that allows public lands to charge recreation fees. Booz Allen said in a legal filing that it can't be tried separately from from the agencies that use recreation.gov. The company also said it doesn't have the authority to refund the fees. Booz Allen does not charge any fees, nor does it receive any fees from the users of recreation.gov, including the plaintiffs, the Booz Allen spokeswoman said in an email. Christine Wong, a 36-year-old physician from Honolulu, said she has applied at least 10 times to visit the popular destination known as the Wave near the Utah-Arizona border in Peria Canyon Vermilion Cliffs Wilderness. Applying, the lot, applying to the lottery for a chance to visit the Wave costs $9, whether the application is successful or not. Of the $9, $5 ultimately goes to Booz Allen and $4 goes to the Bureau of Land Management, which manages the site, a BLM spokeswoman said. Recreation.gov uses a submitted user, users submitted about 130,000 applications for permits to hike the wave last year, generalizing about six. $148,200 for Booz Allen and $518,600 for the BLM, a BLM spokeswoman said. The BLM also collected about $35,500 in permit fees from successful applicants, he said. Miss Wong said that she considered her unsuccessful application a donation, not a payment to a third party. I always assumed the fee went to the park, she said. Now we are reading, Fed move came down to wire on rough weekend. Officials waited out SVB, Swiss bank turmoil before March rate increase. Federal Reserve Chair Jerome Powell and his colleagues faced their closest call on interest rates in years. It wasn't until the clock was ticking down two days before their scheduled decision last month that senior leaders settled on a, plan, on a plan to lift them by a quarter percentage point. That was down to the wire in Fed time. Rate-setting meetings are usually tightly choreographed and devoid of suspense. The big decisions happen in the week leading up to the gatherings and not during the two days of elaborate presentations and discussion around the boardroom table. Fed leaders like to avoid surprises so they can fine-tune their public message. The run-up to their March 21-22 meeting, which was dominated by concerns about the banking system crisis that had erupted two weeks earlier, was the opposite. The decision on the heels of rolling out new tools to address heightened financial stress highlighted the flexibility and improvisation. That has been a calling card of Mr. Powell during his five years at the top of the central bank. Pushing ahead with the rate increase demonstrated by the Fed's desire to avoid falling behind in its fight against inflation. It could also give officials more flexibility to forego an increase at the next meeting on May 2nd and 3rd. If they see evidence that tighter bank lending conditions are slowing the economy. In March, federal officials weighed two policy options ahead of the meeting, raise 
rates by a quarter point while signaling uncertainty about how much more to lift them or hold rates steady and increase them at their next meeting. They came to their decision Monday, March 20th, only after it had had appeared Swiss authorities had stemmed a dangerous decline in confidence in the global banking system with the forced acquisition of Credit Swiss Group AG by long-term rival UBS Group AG at the night before. The Swiss bank deal came a week before a week after the Fed's intervention to stabilize the US banking system following the failure of two mid-sized American banks. The Swiss merger marked the first combination of two system, system, systemically important global banks, sometimes called GSIVs, since the 2008 financial crisis. If I had woken up on Tuesday morning or Wednesday morning and felt like there was a global GSIB challenge, then I clearly would have seen the case for pausing rate increases, said, Rich, said Richmond Fed President Tom Barkin, referring to the Fed meeting days. Instead, he said, financial turmoil seemed to have calmed down, and I have convinced myself that you had a resilient banking sector and too high inflation, and why wouldn't you continue to fight inflation? This article is based on interviews with Fed officials who described how they reached their decision. At the conclusion of the Fed's previous policy meeting on February 1st, Officials approved a quarter point raise, a rate raise, rate rise, the smallest since March 2022. They slowed their rapid fire pace of increases to allow more time to study the effects of those moves on the economy. On February 3rd, officials were stunned by how a blowout report on January hiring, which pointed to much stronger labor demand than expected. Soon followed other reports showing inflation hadn't fallen much as anticipated in the fourth quarter, and that consumer spending, growth, and inflation had accelerated in January. At a policy conference in Manhattan in late February, one longtime associate asked Fred, Fed Governor Christopher Waller how he was doing. Great until February 3rd, Mr. Waller replied. Now, inflation risk. Mr. Powell concluded that the red that the Fed would have to consider a half point rate rise in March or risk losing ground to inflation. Federal officials said that public publicly they expected to lift their benchmark federal funds rate above five percent this year. So why not get there sooner rather than later? State St. Louis Fed President James Bullard said he thought. He had favored a half-point rate rise at the March meeting until the bank failures. Mr. Powell opened the door to half-point increase during a March 7th hearing before the Senate Banking Committee. Nothing about the data suggests to me that we've tightened too much, he told lawmakers. After investors assumed he meant an increase of half a point or 50 basis points was likely, Mr. Powell stressed the next day during his testimony that no decision had been made. The call appeared likely to hinge on inflation reports due this week of March 13th, after officials had begun their traditional pre-meeting quiet period. The case was between 25 and 50 basis points, said Mr. Barkin. I like the notion of a flatter path because it gives you more time to understand and less cost if you're wrong. 
so I probably was hoping for a set of inflation readings that could that would support that path. Everything changed on Thursday, March 9th, after Silicon Valley disclosed it would raise capital and register losses on securities that had fallen in value. Panic depositors, largely startups funded by venture capital firms, started a run on the bank that resulted in a shocking $42 billion being pulled by the day's end. The bank told the Fed it had anticipated another $100 billion in outflows on Friday, March 10th, and, reg and regulators closed the bank before the start of business. Mr. Powell scrapped plans to attend a regular meeting of central bankers in Brazil, Switzerland that weekend. Instead, he coordinated with other regulators on a plan that would bail out the uninsured depositors of the bank and a second lender that was facing a run in New York based signature bank. The Fed, which conducts emergency lending to banks through its so-called discount window, also agreed to make loans at more favorable terms under a new program designed to ease press pressure banks faced for borrow borrower withdrawals. That was a rough weekend, said Mr. Barkin. He normally meets with his staff about a week before the Fed meeting to draft the formal statement that he plans to deliver, but this time he suggested waiting so he wouldn't have to rewrite his statement two or three times, he told them. I just suspended judgment on the rate decision, he said. Banking Turmoil Fed meetings with up to 19 officials participating tend to be the most problematic when there is turmoil that happens right in the 10-day window before the meeting, because it's a big meeting and it's and it's a formal meeting, and the chair has to have ironed out more or less what's going to happen at the meeting, said Mr. Bullard. It's difficult, let's say, for the committee to be processing new information on the fly and trying to make a good decision at the meeting. Mr. Powell told colleagues the day before the meeting he hoped to proceed with a quarter-point rate rise, but they needed to see banking sector stresses abate before they could entertain that option. The Fed's inflation-fighting credentials wouldn't be bolstered by tightening into a hurricane, he told them. A financial crisis is not to be trifled with, and you don't really know what's going to happen next in a situation like we were facing at that meeting, said Mr. Bullard. The Fed ra ra raises rates to fight inflation by slowing the econ the economy through tighter financial conditions such as hiring, borrowing costs, lowering stock prices, and a stronger dollar, which curbed demand. The banking turmoil created risks of a more rapid tightening in financial conditions. Lenders would come under pressure from bank supervisors and their own management teams to reduce risk-taking. Banks also could see their earnings squeezed if they raised deposit rates, which could further crimp lending. Atlanta Fed President Raphael Bostic had spent the days before the meeting querying bankers and small business owners about credit conditions, deposit flows, and loan demand. If it was going to be the case that our policy action was going to exacerbate things, then I would really have to think hard about whether we need to pause, he said. It was a turbulent time. Officials faced a similar dilemma a year earlier when they were preparing to start raising rates from near zero to fight surging inflation. 
Mr. Powell considered beginning with a half-point raise increase, but opted for a smaller quarter-point move after Russia invaded Ukraine and raised the risk of financial turbulence. By Sunday, March 19th, Fed officials thought that they had done enough to bolster the U.S. banking system, particularly after 11 large banks tried to shore up confidence in First Republic Bank by depositing $30 billion. Fed data showed that the usage of the new bank funding program and the discount window, while high, had stabilized, a sign the turmoil wasn't spending, it wasn't spreading in the U.S. You had the I call it day to day back and forth in your mind whether about whether this was contagion or whether this was an isolated incident, said Mr. Barkin. In Europe, meanwhile, the Swiss officials spent the weekend racing to put in place a plan for UBS to acquire Credit Suisse. Switzerland's decision to give priority to shareholders over bondholders who invested $17 billion in the bank's riskiest bonds fueled fears that investors might dump bonds of other European banks when markets opened early Monday. Mr. Powell, an early riser, had his eye on the European bank stocks, which had initially tumbled, raising doubts about whether he would be able to go ahead with a rate rise. Fed officials planned to pair an increase with more cautious language around the path ahead, dropping from their policy statement, a key phrase that had signaled a steady march to lift rates higher. Would that be enough? We could have gone either way here. A lot depended on how the UBS Credit Suisse situation worked out, said Mr. Bullard. The initial market reaction in Europe was not good. Calmer Markets When trading opened in the U.S., sentiment improved. European bank stocks ended the day up, and they rallied even more on Tuesday, the first sign of the Fed meeting, a sign the deal had calmed markets. Mr. Bosick was boarding his flight to Washington as the Credit Suisse deal was getting digested by markets, that the contagion was not broadening. gave him more comfort that we had some space to continue to move, he said. Moreover, investors were now expecting a quarter-point Fed rate increase. Holding rates would steadily would in, would risk holding rates steadily would risk sending an ominous message. If you do too little, then you might signal more worry that is warranted for the situation, and then though expectations, you could make the entire situation worse instead of better, said Mr. Bullard. That cleared the way for Mr. Powell to move ahead with the rate increase, backed by a strong consensus among the policymakers at the meeting. Mr. Powell said after the meeting it was possible the banking crisis, by tightening credit, could have the same effect on financial conditions as a rate rise of a quarter point or more. That means that monetary policy may have less work to do. We simply don't know, he said at a press conference. Mr. Powell's framing is the way we ought to be thinking about that, as he opposed to saying, a bank has had some problems and we had to change monetary policy, said Mr. Barkin. This question of do you separate monetary policy and financial stability? You can't be oblivious to what's what's happened in the broader environment. 
Fed officials at the meeting also delivered grim projections about the economic outlook. They expected to hold rates at high levels this year, while the economy slows, resulting essentially no growth and rising unemployment. Ahead of the May meeting, Mr. Powell last month indicated he is carefully watching banking credit conditions for any lending caution that slows the economy, which could mean the Fed wouldn't have to raise rates as much. Officials could could continue with rate increases if they conclude the banking stresses have eased and economic activity remains strong, or they could skip an increase next month and keep the door open to raising rates again in June. If you ask banks, are you tightening credit conditions, you'll probably just get the answer, yes, said Mr. Barkin, but it is the kind of credit condition tightening that is going to lead to knock-on effects in the economy. That's what I'm trying to understand. Mr. Bullard sees an 80% chance that the economy isn't seriously derailed by banking system stress, in which case he thinks the Fed will need to increase rates a few more times, or this could get worse and all bets are off. You are listening to a reading of articles and features from the Wall Street Journal on the Niagara Frontier Radio Reading Service. Now we'll continue with blasts hit Russia-controlled city in Ukraine. Ukraine stepped up strikes on a Russian-occupied city in southern Ukraine that sits along a critical supply line to Crimea, and it is a potential prime target for Ukraine's planned spring offensive. The exiled mayor of Melitopol, Ivan Fedorov, a a Russian base near an airfield, was hit. Russian-installed occupation authorities in Metropole said air defenses shot down by six missiles fired by U.S.-supplied M-142 high-mobility artillery rocket system, or HIMARS. The strikes were were the third attack on the city in recent days. On Wednesday, explosions erupted in the vicinity of a train depot and military airstrip, said Mr. Fedorov. Two days earlier, Russian-installed official Maxim Zubarev was seriously wounded with an apparent car bomb attack in the city. Kiev didn't claim responsibility, but it has stated on several occasions that Ukrainian partisans are working in Russian-occupied areas. Russian forces seized Metropole, Mel- Melitopol in the early days of invasion last year, creating a land bridge connecting areas under its control in mainland Ukraine with the Crimean Peninsula, which Moscow troops occupied in 2014. The timing and target of Kiev's anticipated military push is closely guarded, but analysis analysis say that a thrust south to Melitopol makes strategic sense because it could break through Russia's land bridge and restore Ukraine's access to the Azov Sea. From the north shore of the Azov Sea, Ukrainian forces potentially would be able to strike the Kerch Strait Bridge, which Russia opened in 2018 to connect its mainland to Crimea. The bridge was hit with an explosion in October that seriously damaged its structure and impeded Moscow's transports to Crimea. Russia is still working to repair it. Two roads to Crimea run through a swampy isthmus from the Russia-controlled land bridge. 
Russian forces were mining fields along the front lines surrounding Melitopol in the Zaporizhia region as it steals itself for a possible Ukrainian assault, Mr. Fedorov said. A new assessment by the United Nations and the World Bank estimated the cost of damage done by Russian attacks on Ukraine's infrastructure at more than $10 billion. The largest share of damage is to the power sector, nearly $6.5 billion, while damage to nuclear plants reached about $770 million. The cost of emergency repairs is estimated to reach $1.2 billion. Meanwhile, Ukrainian forces are fighting to prevent Russia from making further inroads in the east. The general staff of Ukraine's armed forces said Russian attacks remained focused on the cities of Bakhmut, Adivita, and Marinka. Ukrainian forces, after series of victories last year have been on the defensive in recent months, but Russia has made limited gains despite mobilizing an additional 300,000 men last fall. The battle for Bakhmut, a coal mining hub in the Donetsk region, has become a pivotal battlefield in the broader war for Moscow and Kyiv. Now we are reading Moscow Court to hear reporters' appeal. A Moscow court said Thursday that it would hear an appeal from lawyers of Evan Gerskovich, the jailed Wall Street Journal reporter who was detained last week and accused of spying. Mr. Gerskovich's lawyers are challenging his detention on allegations of espionage, which the journal vehemently denies. The Moscow City Court said it would hear the appeal on April 18th. The court said... The court could uphold Mr. Gurkovich's continued detention in Moscow's Lefortovo prison, order him move to another jail, allow him house arrest, or grant him bail. A spokeswoman for the journal declined to comment on specific requests Mr. Gurkovich's lawyers made during, made regarding his detention. A spokeswoman for the court said that by law, its final decision must be communicated in public, but that the... Pre- but that the proceedings can take place behind closed doors. The court said it was unclear whether Mr. Gurkovich would appear at the hearing in person or via video link. The U.S. government has called for Mr. Gurkovich's immediate release, and Secretary of State Anthony Blinken said Wednesday that he had no doubt that the journalist had been wrongfully detained. The government has said Mr. Gurkovich isn't a spy. On Thursday, Russia's foreign ministry said its deputy foreign minister, Sergei Rybinov, discussed Mr. Gurkovich's case with U.S. Ambassador to Russia, Lynn Tracy, after she raised the issue. The foreign ministry said the charges against Mr. Gurkovich were of serious nature, and it alleged that he was caught red-handed while trying to obtain classified information using his journalistic strategy status as a cover for illegal actions qualifying as espionage. The foreign ministry also said Ms. Tracy was told that the hype around this case, which is being fanned in the United States with the aim of putting pressure on the Russian authorities and the court, is hopeless and senseless. A spokeswoman for the U.S. State Department confirmed the meeting took place, but that in general it doesn't comment on diplomatic talks. 
Authorities in Russia detained Mr. Gurkovich during a reporting trip to the Urals city of Yekaterinburg on March 29th. He was accredited by Russian Foreign Ministry to work as a journalist in the country at the time. The journal has said his arrest should spur outrage in all free people and governments throughout the world. No reporter should be d detained for simply doing their job. Russia said that it is acting in accordance with its laws. Representatives from the U.S. Embassy in Moscow haven't been able to visit Mr. Gurkovich and may, might not be permitted to for several days, U.S. officials said. Russia has an opaque and highly bureaucratic process for cons consular access, said a State Department spokeswoman. It's inexcusable. We need to get consular access to Evan, National Security Council Coordinator for Strategic Communications, John Kirby said Thursday of the delay. He declined to say whether or whether or when the U.S. would consider a prisoner swap to Mr. Gurkovich's release. We're doing what we can to keep his employer and family informed. Our focus is squarely on that right now, he said. Senate Foreign Relations Committee Chair Bob Menendez said Thursday that Russia must comply with the Vienna Convention on Consular Relations. It is outrageous that they have denied the State Department one of the most basic tenets of international treaty said the senator. There is no excuse for failing to provide such access eight days into Mr. Gurkovich's detention. Mr. Menendez also urged the Biden administration to render an official determination transferring control of the State Department's response to Mr. Gurkovich's arrest to the Office of Special Presidential Envoy for Hostage Affairs. He said such a determination would help provide a key resources and support to Mr. Gurkovich and his family. An official de designation would uh, rev up the U.S. government's efforts to win his release. On Wednesday, Russia's foreign ministry spokeswoman Maria Zakharova said Russia would allow U.S. consular access in due course under standard Russian procedures. A spokeswoman for the journal declined to comment Thursday on whether Mr. Gurkovich had received further legal visits or any consular visits. In an interview with CNN on Thursday, former Vice President Mike Pence called on the Biden administration to expel Russian diplomats from the U.S. European governments and the chief of North Atlantic Treaty Organization have denounced the reporter's arrest. You are listening to a reading of articles and features from the Wall Street Journal on the Niagara Frontier Radio Reading Service. We are now moving to the business and finance section of the Wall Street Journal, starting with Google search to include chat AI. CEO Pical says more work left to do to achieve goal of being 20% more productive. Google plans to add conversational artificial intelligence features to its flagship search engine, Chief Executive Officer Sundar Pichai said, as it deals with pressure from chatbots such as ChatGPT and wider business issues. 
Advances in AI would supercharge Google's ability to answer an array of search queries, Mr. PK said in an interview. He dismissed the, the, the notion that the chatbots posed a threat to Google's search business, which accounts for more than half of revenue at Parent Alphabet Incorporated. The opportunity space, if anything, is bigger than is bigger than before, said Mr. Pekai, who also heads Alphabet, and said Google has long has long been a leader in developing commuter computer programs called large language models or LLMs, which can process and respond to natural language prompts, like with human-like prose. But it hasn't yet used the technology to influence the way people use search, something Mr. Pekai said would change. Will people be able to ask questions to Google and exchange with LLMs in the context of search? Absolutely, said Mr. Pekai. With Microsoft Corporation already deploying the technology behind ChatGPT system and its Bing search engine, Mr. Pekai is dealing with one of the biggest threats to Google's core business in years as he also faces investor pressure to cut costs. In January, Alphabet said it would eliminate about 12,000 jobs, or 6% of its staff, in its largest layoffs to date. Inflation and recession concerns have spurred other tech companies to cut back. Mr. Pekai said Google hasn't yet achieved a goal of becoming 20% more productive, a target he set in September. He said the company was comfortable with its pace of change, though he wouldn't directly address the prospects of another round of layoffs. Last week, Google's chief financial officer, Ruth Porat, told employees to expect more spending cuts in areas ranging from dining facilities to the company's computing infrastructure, which is critical for developing and running powerful AI algorithms. We are definitely being focused on creating durable savings, Mr. Pekai said, but we are pleased with the progress, but there is more work left to do. Google has pushed forward with its AI efforts despite the cost cuts, accelerating work on new products following the breakout success of ChatGPT. Google has for years used AI systems to better understand complex queries, but the public release of ChatGPT in November by Microsoft-backed startup OpenAI has sparked a race to integrate the technology into consumer products. Microsoft CEO Satya Nadella has taken direct aim at Google's dominant search engine, telling, Google, telling the journal in February that a new race is starting with a completely new platform technology. That month, Microsoft infused the technology behind ChatGPT into its search engine, Bing, long a distant laggard to Google search. The move allowed users to engage in extended conversations with the product. Microsoft said that it expected to generate $2 billion in revenue for every percentage point it gained in the search market, of which Google has more than 90% share. Mr. PK's largest com comments, latest comments indicate that Google plans to allow users to interact directly with the company's large language models. Through its, through its search engine. That move could upend the traditional link-based experience that has been the norm for more than two decades. Google is testing several new search products that 
such as versions that allow users to ask follow-up questions to their original queries, Mr. PK said. The company said last month that it would begin thoughtfully integrating LLMs into search in a deeper way, but until now that until now hadn't detained detailed plans to offer conversational features. Google has begun testing testing new AI features within Gmail and other work-related products, while Microsoft has moved to offer AI beyond Bing for use in some of its business software tools. The stakes in the AI race in search are particularly high for Mr. PK. Search aids Search ads remain the biggest moneymaker for Google, bringing in $162 billion of revenue last year. Google, at times, had been cautious about moving too fast with technology, wary of the radical altering the way users interact with its search engine. Researchers have raised concerns about the accuracy of AI-powered chatbots. When Google in March opened public access to BARD, its AI-based chatbot, the company didn't integrate it into its search engine, instead offering it through a waitlist at a standalone site. A virtual button at the bottom of the product redirects users to Google's search engine for additional information. It has been incredible to see user excitement around adoption of these technologies, and some of that is a pleasant surprise as well, Mr. PK said. When when asked why the company didn't release a chatbot earlier, Mr. PK said Google was still trying to find the right market. We were iterating to ship something, and maybe some lines changed given the moment in the industry, he said. Google will continue to improve BARD with new AI models, Mr. PK said, while declining to comment on when the product would become freely available without a wait list. Now we are looking at smart camera plans for Paris generate worries on privacy. French lawmakers approved plans to use smart surveillance cameras as a temporary security measure at the Paris 2024 Olympic Games over objections from privacy advocates who say the technology is intrusive to residents, especially if it remains in use after the event ends. The country's National Assembly approved a bill last month authorizing companies to test computer vision cameras to use at stadiums and nearby transportation hubs to identify security threats during the Olympics. The law, which will likely be enacted in the coming months, would allow the cameras to remain until the end of 2024. Privacy advocates argue the computer vision technology, which uses algorithms to detect suspicious behavior or objects, is invasive surveillance because it recognizes people's physical characteristics and sends alerts to security authorities. The French privacy regulator said the technology comes with risks, but isn't on par with facial recognition cameras that identify specific individuals based on unique features. We would experiment to know more about the effectiveness of this technology, said Bertrand Pallier, head of technology and innovation at the SNIL, the, the French data protection regulator. Companies use computer vision technology to analyze complex processes, such as monitoring activities in chicken processing plants. Using cameras in public spaces is controversial because they could 
record images of anyone passing in the area. For the Olympics, the SNO plans to oversee technology companies that win government contracts as they start tests of their computer vision cameras this year and during the Games next year. Mr. Palhi said the regulator would advise the companies about how to comply with privacy rules, and it will investigate potential violations. Companies developing computer vision have bemoaned the slow pace of getting legal approval to use the technology in public spaces in Europe during the onset of the COVID-19 pandemic in 2020. The use of the computer vision cameras was criticized when Paris public transportation authorities tested a system from French company Dakata Lab to detect if people were wearing face masks. The data protection regulator's office stopped the trial because there was no law in place authorizing the tools. A law was passed in 2021 to allow the cameras, but they weren't set up again, said Xavier Fisher, Dakota Lab's chief executive. Mr. Fisher said the company had since stopped working with computer vision because legal questions made the market too unpredictable. Competitors outside Europe don't have to navigate the same legal restrictions, he said. We were losing precious time. Privacy advocates worry the Olympics' use of computer vision cameras will open the door for surveillance by police and other organizations. The Olympic Games is actually a great justification for them to make this technology acceptable, said Naomi Levine, a legal advisor at La Quadrature du Net, a French nonprofit that advocates for privacy and digital rights. The group said the law will make France the first European country to to legalize biometric surveillance. You've been listening to a reading of articles and features from the April 7th issue of the Wall Street Journal. Your reader has been Taryn. Thank you for listening.